0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A year into the pandemic, Denver restaurant owner Natalie Perez finally feels optimistic. The business was struggling. So was her son. The family got COVID. But customers are returning. Her kiddo has energy again, which you'll no doubt hear in the background.
1: He's eating really well. He also started going to the gym with his dad. So that's something that Feels a little
0: normal. Then, celebrity chef Andrew Zimmer got a taste for alcohol early on. I had to go see a drug
2: counselor who took a look at me and said, You're a chronic alcoholic and drug addict, and you're only 18 years old.
0: Today, his journey coming back from broken. I think this is really important
2: for people to understand. Some days, my second or third best effort is the best that I can do.
1: My name
3: is Sonia. I support CPR because when I first moved to Denver about a year and a half ago, listening to the news, but also the classical and the indie station, helped me feel like I was more a part of the community here. And it just helped me feel more like I had a home here. So I am so grateful to support CPR, and I hope that others will join me. To our membership community, thank you for supporting CPR. You make it possible.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. COVID-19 reared its spiky red head in Colorado one year ago today. Governor Jared Polis announced the state's first presumptive positive case March 5th, 2020.
2: The subject is a male in his 30s who was visiting Summit County uh, from another state. He traveled uh, to Italy in mid-February where uh, there, there was an outbreak occurring. Uh, And also a travel companion of his is a known case of positive, testing positive for coronavirus in another state.
0: As of this morning, the state has had more than 433,000 cases and nearly 6,000 deaths. As you heard in that clip, Colorado's high country took the first blows. Then the virus spread, tearing through nursing homes, meatpacking plants, shutting down schools. In Denver, Natalie Perez has navigated the school nightmare for most of the last year. She owns a small Denver restaurant. Her son, Roman Ortiz, finished third grade on a laptop last spring and did the first half of fourth grade the same way, lugging that laptop from home to his mom's car to the restaurant, logging on, signing off, repeat. Things got even more complicated. The whole family came down with COVID. The restaurant struggled And Roman was really, really unhappy. He missed his friends, started acting out, and Perez got him into therapy. Well, things are finally looking up. First off, Roman is back in school.
1: So I just see him with more energy now and being less frustrated. Also, he was having trouble sleeping, and he's been dealing with that very well now. And I'm so happy because it was a struggle almost every night. He's eating really well. He also started going to the gym with his dad. So that's something that feels a little normal, like doing the after school and the rush and being busy.
0: You probably heard Roman working off some of that energy at home on a recent snow day while we talked to his mom. Meanwhile, the family restaurant, Barbacoa El Oso, is busier. Regulars are returning.
1: People I hadn't seen in over a year, and it's crazy, and they're coming back in, and they're like, oh my god, it's been so long.
0: But it'll take a while for the restaurant to come back financially.
1: When the pandemic first happened, we were starting to, because we had just opened like two years before, and we were just starting to see like the growth, (laughs) and then the pandemic happened. So it kind of like pushed us back all the way to the beginning but i don't know we're just hanging in there and hopefully hopefully things work out
0: natalie perez has recovered slowly from COVID 19. she says she's almost 100 percent
1: so it's better the only thing is that my smell is not the same like everything smells different and like i love chili and it doesn't taste the same
0: That's an issue we've explored in depth on this program, smell. You can find that coverage at CPR.org. And while the pandemic is nowhere near over, Perez says she's learned some things in the last year.
1: We've slowed down a lot. Before, I feel like it was always, we were always in a rush to get somewhere, to do something. And now it's like, oh, we got time. There's no rush for that. And also just like during the summer, we spend a lot of time together and outside and it was really nice.
0: When the time is right, Natalie Perez says she wants to travel.
1: Because I just feel like you just never know what could happen. And I just want to be able to show Roman that the world is really big and there's so much we we can find out there.
0: That is Natalie Perez. Her family owns Barbacoa El Oso restaurant in Denver. Her son, Roman Ortiz, is back in his fourth grade classroom at Rocky Mountain Prep Southwest. Today marks a year since Colorado's first COVID case. And you can find all of our anniversary coverage of loss, lessons learned, and the road to recovery at (music) CPR.org. Back from Broken is CPR's podcast about recovery, how we're all broken sometimes, but that it's possible to find renewal. And just as we mark a year of the pandemic, season two premieres. Creator and host Vic Vela joins us. Vic's also weekend morning host on CPR News. Hi, Vic. Hey, Ryan. Uh, good to be talking to you again, my friend. This podcast came out of your own personal journey through addiction and recovery, An interviewer recently asked you to describe what it's like quitting drugs, and you said, imagine there's only one single thing that you really, really want to do, but it's also the one single thing you absolutely cannot do. Tell me more about that response. Yeah. You know, when you're so used to drinking
3: and getting high every day, you just, you can't fathom life without it. So like doing cocaine for me was like what brushing your teeth is to you, hmm. you know? It's just what I do every day, and I don't even think about it. Or, or so I thought for a really long time. And look, cocaine was my master, and um, cocaine was the only thing I cared about doing. And and as soon as I got paid, the first thing I did was budget uh, cocaine uh, for the week. Rent, bills, things like that, that came in a very distant second. But thank God for recovery. You know, you, I use that line a lot. Another way to look at it is, Addiction is giving up everything for one thing.
0: Hmm. Recovery is giving up one thing for everything. Hmm. As we look ahead to the second season of Back From Broken, reflect on what the first season taught you. Wow. I, I'm just so proud of
3: the work that we did, uh, all the producers involved on Back From Broken, especially that first season, which was received so well. I think, Ryan, it was just a reminder that we're not alone, that, that none of us are alone, although it may feel like it when we're going through hell. When I hear my guests like, talk about their own struggles, their own hell, it just takes me back to the days when you know, I would sit alone in my basement smoking crack um, by myself into the morning hours. But some of my guests used to do that too. And, and when you hear your story in someone else's journey, your story in someone else's story, right? It, that's a really powerful thing. And then the light bulb goes off and it's like, wow, this person knows exactly what it's like to be me. And then a weight is lifted and, and perhaps
0: you get a good cry out of it. And then you're not alone anymore podcast as fellowship, which feels especially important at a time when so many of us are isolated and that feeling of being alone is exacerbated. Okay, we'll talk about what's ahead for season two, but first, let's listen to the season premiere. It features chef Andrew Zimmern. Before hosting the show's Bizarre Foods and What's Eating America, he struggled with alcoholism as we hear his story of coming back from broken, a warning that it contains some strong language and discussion of suicide.
2: When I was like 10, I was with my mother on a vacation down to the Caribbean, and they did one of those desserts where they pour, like, you know, two ounces of 151 on top of some ice cream and pineapples and light it on fire. So there was a ton of alcohol in this thing. And I remember mixing it with my ice cream and like drinking it like a float. And that was the first time that I ever really remember getting drunk drunk. Andrew Zimmern's first
3: encounters with alcohol were innocent enough. Before he was a celebrity chef and TV host eating stuff like fermented shark and other worldly vegetables, He was a kid who snuck drinks here and there, often in front of older family
2: members who thought it was more funny than serious. There were holidays where, you know, I got a glass of ginger ale and my cousins were punking me and it was really champagne. I took a big sip and, you know, as a little kid and like spun around and told stories and and felt the, the personality change from the alcohol. For Andrew, alcohol was just a part of everyday life in a lot of ways. You know, I used to sip my dad's drinks when I made them for him because I just loved the taste of the scotch and soda that I made for him. And I would always put the ice and the scotch in there and fill it with soda to the top of the glass so that I was forced to sip it before carrying it in so I wouldn't spill it. And that was my excuse in case I got caught. But I was addicted to the sneakiness and the lying before I was addicted to how the, the booze made me feel.
3: That early exposure to alcohol and lying and the thrill it gave Andrew was the beginning of a decades-long addiction that got worse and worse. I'm Vic Vela. I'm a journalist, a storyteller, and a recovering drug addict. And this is Season 2 of Back from Broken. Stories about the highest highs, the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. It's a tough time right now with everything going on in the world. And then we each have our own personal struggles on top of that. But I'm really excited to welcome you back for season two of the show. And this time around, we're going to broaden the types of stories we're telling. You'll hear about PTSD and veterans issues, postpartum mental illness, the trauma of what's called gay conversion therapy, and of course, stories of addiction and recovery. And we're starting with Andrew Zimmern who has almost 30 years of sobriety under his belt and went through hell to get there. The guy's got a lot of wisdom to share about long-term recovery. Let me just remind everyone of why people love Andrew
2: Zimmer. We're preparing a loire, a traditional feast to feed about 160 people. First, the pig is blessed by a local priest and carried outside to be dispatched. The blood that's spilled will be incorporated into several of the dishes that are being prepared.
3: To remove its course, my sponsor is a big fan of yours. So, before we get super serious, what's the last weird thing
2: you ate? Last weird thing that I ate. Probably this summer with my kid, we found some little crustaceans, and I just popped those in my mouth just to amuse him. He still <laughs> finds that interesting.
3: Many people know Andrew Zimmern from his show, Bizarre Foods, on the Travel Channel, where he travels around the world eating crickets, bugs, and all kinds of little critters as a way to introduce Americans to new foods and cultures. Long before his TV show, Andrew built a career as a restaurateur with a passion for food and a natural talent for cooking. And it all started in New York City, where he grew up as an only child in the 1960s and 70s. His childhood was split between his mother's and his father's homes after his parents' divorce when he was
2: five years old. You know, my dad had found the love of his life, which uh, happened to be another man, and went to live down in the West Village with my stepfather, Andre. You know, my father had very openly told my mother about his sexuality. He really wanted a son. They were best friends and loved each other very much, and so they had a different type of marital arrangement than most other people. Until my father met Andre and wanted to move on with his life. So Andrew spent most of his time with his mom, but would
3: go to his dad's on weekends. And in the summertime, he went to camp out of state. The summer Andrew turned 13, he flew back home from camp like normal. He got off the plane, expecting to see his mom. Instead, his father and his uncle were there.
2: So I immediately knew something was up. And the two of them tried to explain to me what had happened to my mother. She had a problem during a surgery, oxygen flow was cut off to her brain during the anesthetization process. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was never the same. She spent years in hospitals, mental health clinics, trying to, to get right. You know, instead of dying, where there could be an opportunity to complete a grieving process, mother that i knew the first 13 years of my life she was gone and she was replaced by someone else she had a complete personality change hair color changed
3: well coming back from you know here you're enjoying your summer and when you go home mom's never the same i mean how did that rock you
2: when you were that was the it was the most traumatic day of my life um without a doubt we went up to the hospital room and i walked in i saw her in an oxygen tent and by the way this is 1974. So we're talking about an old fashioned oxygen tent, very scary, very steampunk looking. I mean, it was just, I'll I'll never forget it. And I just broke down hysterically, you know, the doctor, my uncle and my father basically told me, uh, put up your chest, stick your chin up. You've had your cry. We're going to move on. We're going to do the best we can. So we walked from the hospital, which was just eight or nine blocks away from our home uh, in New York. And during that walk, my father reinforced all of those th- and told me he would be returning downtown to his apartment with Andre. There would be a nurse and a caretaker in my home that my father had left my mother after the divorce. And I sort of became the ultimate latchkey kid. My, my father, continues to this day to be my hero. I have him on a pedestal. It took me 25 years into sobriety to get to the point where I could admit that that day when my father dropped me off at the apartment, that he abandoned me.
3: Andrew, you're talking about a very difficult time in your life you were drinking even before this happened with your mom did this exacerbate
2: it what did your drinking and drugging look like at this time so i, I think it was a week or 10 days after i came home from summer camp i made the decision to take the 200 dollars in cash that was buried in a little envelope underneath the silverware drawer kind of like the emergency cash in the house and i bought a quarter pound of weed From a drug dealer that my friends and I knew in Central Park, kept some for myself, sold the rest to my buddies, put the $200 back in the envelope, and was so proud of myself. You know, I had completed my first drug deal. I'm 13 years old and I'm drinking and smoking pot. By the time I got to college, I was already a daily cocaine user, daily pill user, daily drinker, daily marijuana smoker, and had already tried heroin my senior year in high school. So by the time I got to college, I had to go see a drug counselor who took a look at me and said, you're a chronic alcoholic and drug addict, and you're only 18 years old. Wow. And Was that the first person who ever said that yeah, to you? Yep. First one. And, you know, of course, I told him to go <laughs> himself. I mean, only, <laughs> only because, you know, at that age, I'm invincible. I'm Superman. Sure. By the end of that semester, I was asked to take second semester freshman year off by the school. Um, I went to Europe and cooked for six months. You know, I did what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. I mean, king baby to the max. But I still wasn't. There was no admission that there was a problem. As an addict and alcoholic, we we go from the place where. We don't know we have a problem to the next place where we know we have a problem, but we're going to lie to someone when confronted mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. And then we go to that third place where, you know, we tell someone, screw you, I don't care. And in other words, we don't deny it. We almost yeah. embrace it because we know that's who we are. And you—that's that's where addicts and alcoholics go to die is at that point. Andrew stayed
3: at that place for a long time before he realized he truly had a problem.
2: I didn't get sober until I was 30. So there were 12 more years of just going down, 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 down. And it it was horrific. Those 12
3: years are filled with some of Andrew's most painful memories. Early on, he says he was living a double life. During work hours, he built his career as a successful chef. But when he was off the clock, his alcohol and drug use escalated. For a while, he was a poster child for a functioning addict. You know, someone who is addicted to drugs, but somehow manages to show up to work and things like that. But eventually, all of Andrew's money went to feeding his addiction.
2: And he says he just couldn't keep up the facade anymore. When I finally got caught, by life, when everything sort of sped up and met me at the point that I was at, when things got real uh, and there was no one else to talk to, no one else would lend me a dollar, no one else would let me sleep on the couch, no one else, no one else, no one else. I was sleeping in an abandoned building with a bottle gang down on Sullivan Street, an ugly, wind blown, abandoned part of the city. I lived there somewhere around 10, 11 months. My needs weren't great. I needed what limited food I could muster, whatever limited monies I needed for alcohol. And, you know, I I didn't shower. I would steal bottles of Comet cleanser to sprinkle it around the dirty pile of clothes that I slept on every night so the rats and roaches wouldn't cross over me when I passed oh, man. out. and gosh. It, it was bad. <laughs> um, oh, and at that point, I was doing spot jobs, stealing from my mother, hiding from my friend. No one would talk to me. I was essentially off on my own uh, at that point with no relationships. I would park myself outside of nightclubs And I would watch to see if a guy in a really expensive suit left on his own stumbling. And that became my mark. And then I would follow that person, push them down on the ground, reach into their pants, grab their wallet and run. Right. So that was kind of an easy thing to do. How often did you do that? Uh, Once a month.
3: Okay. So what was that pain like? Andrew, the first time I stole, when I started stealing to feed my addiction, I I, I was so numb and I knew that as soon as I got my drugs, it would make everything go away. Any bad things go away. It wasn't until I woke up the next morning
2: when I would say,
3: oh my God, I stole from someone yesterday. Yep.
2: Yep. And that's when I would reach for whatever I had left by my bed when I passed out and take a couple of swigs so that I couldn't feel those feelings of guilt and shame and no matter how much I talk about it it feels now like it was a a whole other person I just can't imagine doing that today I, there's the, it just is it, it's beyond my comprehension and yet I did it. And the reason that I did was that I believed with every ounce of my being, I did not have a choice. There was no choice. I had to do it.
3: After decades of drinking and using heavy drugs, Andrew finally hit rock bottom. He was barely scraping by, had few friends left, and his health was really getting bad. Feeling like he had nothing left to live for, he made a plan to end it all. It started with breaking into his godparents' home in a swanky spot in the city. Andrew knew the doorman, so getting inside was easy. He stole jewelry and sold it for some extra spending money. Then he went to a hotel in a very different part of town called the San Pedro.
2: No one checks into a hotel like that. You don't (laughs) register at a hotel like that. You walk up, there's someone behind plexiglass, uh, and you make a deal to get a room. I went upstairs. There was a phone in the room. So I did what I always did, which is just take the phone cord out of the wall. And then I walked across the street. There was a liquor store, bought two cases of Papa Vodka. And uh, so I brought it over to the hotel. I just started drinking around the clock. I mean, chugging, drinking around the clock. My goal was I knew that I was very sick physically. And I was convinced that it would be really easy to drink myself to death. I don't know whether it was day three or four, I came to and I wasn't dead. And for the first time since I was eight or nine years old, I did not feel the the ace bandage of pressure around my chest that I woke up with every morning of my life. Wow. I cannot explain it. I don't know why. even when I talk about it, when I mention it, I can feel that tension across my chest. It's like it's like eight winds of an aCE bandage around your chest would just feel tight. Mm-hmm. Um, that anxiety and fear that morning was not there. I plugged the phone back in the wall. I called my my friend Clark who I felt was the one that would not only, he was really responsible and Mm -hmm. I knew he would answer the phone call. And I knew that I'd be able to talk to him. He was stunned to hear from me. My friends thought I was dead, disappeared, gone off to Timbuktu, whatever. And uh, he said, where are you? And I told him and I said, can you come get me? I need help. It was the first time I'd ever asked for help I mean, I can't remember the, I mean, maybe since I was a kid. Wow. And he said, sure. Like 20 minutes later, he was there. He checked me out of there and took me back to his apartment. And my deal was I wouldn't drink while I was there. Anyway, he dropped me at his house, got me showered up. Then he went back to work to like grab his stuff before coming home. We were going to have dinner together. I cased the apartment right away. I found (laughs) the jar of change. I took his whole jar of change. It was like 20 bucks. So, you know, the, I drank all of the booze in there the first 24 hours. Um, I bought more booze with all the change. The reason he allowed me to do it, I didn't realize it at the time. I thought I had outsmarted him. He was already on the phone with the people at a treatment center in Minnesota and with five or six other friends saying, you know, I found him, he's at the house. And the third day he's like, Pamela wants to see you. Now I had worked for, my friend pamela's father at one point he owned a bunch of restaurants in new york and i'm like what about he goes i don't know i think a job so i walked into a restaurant to meet her thinking oh this is great like clark's behind me i'm gonna get a job this is all working out just according to plan i walked in and there were you know 20 people i knew i knew an intervention when i saw one (laughs) the trap was set yeah I walked in, saw everybody, and I just looked at them. I said, what time's my plane? (laughs) And uh, yeah, they laughed too. Uh...
3: So Andrew went to rehab. His friends got him into an inpatient facility in Minnesota. He met with a counselor every day, worked the 12 steps, went to meetings, and listened to guest speakers. And for the most part, he really soaked it in. A clean bed and three consistent meals a day was definitely a step up from the life he had been living in New York. But recovery's not easy, and there came a time when Andrew started to get really frustrated with how he was progressing. You see, 12-step programs put a lot of focus on connection with a higher power, something bigger than yourself. Andrew noticed that other people at rehab seemed to be getting it. They were having those spiritual moments. But Andrew felt hopeless, because it just didn't click for him yet. Until one day when he was eating lunch with his friends, Cardi and Chuck, two older
2: men in recovery who Andrew often went to for advice. Cardi said something to me that changed my life. He, you know, in every room they have the 12 steps written. And he said, why do you think you have to have this white light spiritual experience? Why do you think you have to have a faint light spiritual experience? Why do you think it has to come to you? And I... I just looked at him, I said, what do you mean? And Cardi was one of the smartest people I've ever met. And he said, well, you know, if you look at the 12th step, he said, it's in written in the past tense, there's a promise buried in there. And it says, having had a spiritual experience as the result of these steps. And he said, what that tells me is that there is a blocking and tackling, there is a one foot in front of the other, go through these steps, and then you will have mm. the spiritual experience and i just i literally but, but not figuratively literally my jaw was in my lap i mean i it was like the cobwebs faded it was like the iceberg melting it was wow. it wasn't fireworks but it was like it was a holy moment and it changed the direction of my life i went back to the unit and became the guy that did everything that I was told to do.
3: And after decades of drinking and drugs, Andrew was now starting a new life. He finished rehab and moved to a halfway house, where something happened that Andrew carried with him
2: through his recovery. About a month after I got to the halfway house, Chuck, who is the other guy who was at that lunch table with Cardi, who you know, I kind of worship Chuck and Cardi. They just had this thing figured out. Chuck had gone on to long-term care at uh, the treatment center I was in. So he came down to the halfway house after me. And he he really drilled home for me this, this idea that it was an all or nothing program. That either I was going to do it this rigorously and 100% and not lie. Like don't tell the staff that you don't smoke in your room when you have an ashtray hidden under your pillow kind of thing. Like the little (laughs) things matter. Like one, one it's easier if you just go in 100%. And, you know, he told me a bunch of other things, just really, really helpful stuff. One night at the halfway house, uh, Chuck, Snuck out, got drunk, and drove the wrong way up a down ramp on the highway, and uh, died in the car crash. Oh no, Andrew! Um, and I wonder all the time why I I get to be here. You know, I have a disease inside of me that it will definitely kill me the moment I stop being as vigilant as I am. That's exactly right. It's why it's so awkward when you get a thank you from someone for volunteering for something, because just like so many other things in recovery, first and foremost, I'm doing it for me because I have a disease that will kill me. Then secondarily, the beautiful part of this is that it ends up helping other people. And then you end up doing it, you know, after many years, you're not sure what the motivation is. Is it because I like doing things for other people? Is it because yeah. selfishly I like the way it makes me feel? I, I don't really care at this point. It's, it's how, I, that's how I run my life. Yeah. I'm trying to act my way into right thinking. And I keep growing the number of tools in my toolkit to make sure that I don't drink again. And if I do that, if I can just not drink again, I always have a chance.
3: You know, a friend uh, called me who's struggling and it was a long, long day at work. I was exhausted and I saw the phone ring. I'm like, oh, I I just can't handle a heavy conversation about struggling right now. But I picked up and we talked and then throughout the conversation, he said, I'm so sorry to be a burden. I'm, I'm sorry. And I told, I would tell him every time you are not being a burden. think of it like you're helping me because me helping you is how I stay sober. Me helping you is how I stay in my recovery. And then pretty soon after an hour-long conversation, everything I was feeling before, the negative thoughts about not wanting to talk, it's been a long day, boom, it's gone. And I feel so much
2: better. The way the universe works in my favor is that you just told me that story and I don't believe in coincidences. It is, (laughs) I am not perfect. I make mistakes every single day. Some days I pick up the phone and some days I push the call to the next day because of my own selfishness, right? And some days, I think this is really important for people to understand. Some days, my second or third best effort is the best that I can do. I had a guy I sponsored many, many years ago, and I really liked him. He was a good guy, funny, smart. Every two years, I would hear about what was going on with Todd. He was sober for a while, then he drifted away. And I got a call one day, it was his son he had graduated college 24 25 years old he told me that his father had died and um it was it was like a gut punch i you know i talked to his son for about a half an hour and and that night i went back into one of my old computers and i found an email from todd from the year before hey just reaching out you know, if you can, give me a call or connect with me, whatever, love to talk. And I never returned the email. Mm. This is not something that I'm proud of talking about. But that day, I'm sure I said to myself, oh, I'll, you know, I'll deal with that tomorrow. I'll get back with Todd. And I never did. And Todd died a year later. And his son had to call me and tell me. Now, I had to tell Todd's kid that his dad had reached out to me the year beforehand and I did nothing.
1: Mm.
2: I told him the story and he said, you did everything you could to help my dad. My dad talked about you like the only guy that ever really tried. And, you know, at this point he's crying, I'm crying. I said, but I didn't return that last. He said, you know something, there were lots of other people, my dad probably reached out to and someone reached out, and my dad still rejected that. He said, you could have reached out to him. And, and this is a 25 year old kid yeah, who just has, yeah. you know, maybe he's gone to a couple Al-Anon meetings. That's incredible. right? I mean, who's sitting there saving my ass as I'm spiraling into a, you know, a, a shame hole. Right. And the fact of the matter is, yeah, I didn't have my best effort available that day. And at the same time, it's not how the universe works. I'm still working just as hard now on my recovery, I hope, as I did when I first started. And it is still, no matter how long you, no matter what happens to you, it is still progress, not perfection. Still progress, not perfection. Because the minute we get into that perfection mode, (laughs) <laughs> we're setting ourselves up for a real big disappointment because we're just we need days. to, we need to give ourselves a
3: break. We need, we need to have compassion for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so important. I think so many people, Andrew, what you just said there about it's okay if we're not perfect. So many people in recovery, I think will get that message. And I certainly do. Let me ask you nowadays does, does your love for food provide any sort of meditation quality for you? Like, is there a recovery component involved when you're cooking or talking about food?
2: Oh, beyond it's that's the understatement of the century. Yeah. Uh, working with food has become my yoga. When I took over a, a restaurant at seven months sober, I made sure I was the first one in the door every day. I butchered all the fish. I I made the soup for the day. And and those were my yogas at the time. No one else was in the building at that point. It was a very, very calming, uh, meditative way to start the day and working. I mean, you know, forget about the connection to food, the meditative aspect of working with food, just the act of cooking by yourself and the focus that's required on it. You can't think about your problems or your resentments or your angers and frustrations, your jealousies, your fears, the brain is incapable of thinking about those things while you're butchering a piece of fish because <laughs> the brain protects your hands from cutting themselves, right yeah, and even today, Sundays are my day to cook at home and I'm head ass and overcoat into recovery in the sense that you know I'm very active in a twelve step group I do a lot of service work. I continue to work and rework and work and rework my recovery. I go away every year for workshops in different places to keep building on my emotional recovery. So I'm very active and I still need to decompress every night by cooking something when I come home from work. I still need to devote time on the weekends just to kind of process out my week and i mean for me i do it with food other people do it with sports or working out or art
1: well i I can relate to a
3: lot of that yeah i can relate to a lot of that
2: because first of all i throw the baseball
3: around all the time and then as as a news anchor i'm on the air the first thing in the morning and i'm trying to 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 write copy five minutes before i go on the air there ain't no time for the negative thoughts to go through that's right? right
2: But what I really have to offer these days is for anyone in longer-term recovery, you know, 10 years plus, don't stop doing what you're doing. There are so many that step away from whatever their program is, and then they wonder why 10 years later they pick up a drink or a drug and they're right back where they started from. And I can tell you, stay close to recovery – put recovery first and foremost into your life on a daily basis.
3: After 22 seasons of eating bizarre foods, Andrew Zimmern continues to host shows about food and culture. He's now the host of What's Eating America on MSNBC, and he continues to be an active part of the Minneapolis recovery community.
0: The season premiere of Back From Broken, host and creator Vic Vela is with me now for a preview of what else is ahead for season two. Hi again, Vic. Hey, Ryan. I do want to just respond to the episode we just heard. You know, I was furiously taking notes, and one of the takeaways for me is, like, when you're in fear or anxiety, think about just helping someone else, being of service, and how that can get you out of that fear state. Does that resonate? Yeah, not only
3: does it resonate, it saved my life. I guarantee you it saved my life uh, before in in recovery. You know, some... We all, even the best of us, even I bet the Dalai Lama has <laughs> negative thoughts, right? Like, you know, some days where he just can't uh, pull it all together um, and we get anxious and we get angry and we get scared or nervous or these are human things. Guess what? I felt those things when I was using. Guess what? I feel those things when I'm sober. Uh, I feel them less and they're less uh, powerful. Like I let them affect me less in, in sobriety, but they're still there. And there is something... I don't know. There's something uh, miraculous when you pick up the phone and call me and say, "Vic, I'm struggling," and I say, "I'm here for you, my friend. How can I help you?" And pretty soon, all the stupid stuff that was clogging up your mind uh, just a few minutes before—it's all gone because you're helping someone. It, It's—it's just—it it is the most powerful uh, thing about uh, my recovery.
0: I think that this underscores. How Much Back From Broken is about more than drug and alcohol addiction. There are universal qualities to these stories. This season, you're also talking about things like conversion therapy, postpartum psychosis, and agoraphobia. Here is comedian Sarah Benincasa.
1: So it got really bad. I eventually just confined myself to what I felt was a safe space where I wouldn't have a panic attack, which was my bed, pretty much.
0: Vic, what struck you about talking with Sarah, who calls herself Agora Fabulous? (laughs) First of all, that's just a great word, right?
3: Um, Well, she's so funny, uh, you know, and I'm a firm believer in the power of humor and laughter, right? Like, I mean, Ryan, you've known me for more than five years now. I'm telling jokes and and making light of heavy things all the time. And, And thank God me and Sarah Benincasa and others like us have that capacity and And what a wonderful place to be in when you're so okay talking about your pain that you can laugh about it because you're not that person anymore. It's just
0: tremendous. I'm curious. Does sober Vic look back at drug-addicted Vic and think that's a stranger to me now that feels like someone else?
3: I mean, it's a really good question. I, I don't recognize the former Vic, but um, I never lose sight of him uh, because uh, even though I'm not that person anymore, uh, the minute I let my guard down, it's exactly what Andrew Sim- Zimmer said at the end of that episode, mm-hmm. Ryan. Like if if I, just because I have a, a six years of sobriety under my belt and I'm doing well and I have a good job and, and things like that. If I start coasting in my recovery and I don't take care of my recovery every day, there will be a moment where I hit a crisis and I won't have that foundation underneath my feet and I'll use. And um, and so to answer your question, um, even though I may not recognize my former self, I have to be very close to former Vic Uh, Because uh, the minute I think I can get away with something, that I can just have this drink once, or I can just do this one line of cocaine on a Saturday and be okay with it,
0: I will die. In season two, you also deal with forgiveness of oneself and of others. This came up in your conversation with Tracy Leckman, the former girlfriend of the man who shot and killed four people and injured a fifth at an Aurora Chuck E. Cheese in 1993. I'm a firm believer that you should not be defined by your worst act in life. Some of us have some doozies as our worst act, but that's not who you are all the time. You're defined by other things, too. Everybody is. We're all complicated people, and we're all worthy of forgiveness and compassion. Did that episode Mm. help you understand forgiveness better?
3: Yeah, I mean, one of the common threads for people in recovery is is how hard it is to forgive yourself. I, I just think that's a huge barrier. I mean, some people never get there, and it's really too bad because I truly believe, like Tracy says, that we're all worthy of forgiveness. And I think you have to forgive yourself in order to get better. You know, we can't change what happened, okay? We can't change the fact that we lost our mortgage for drugs, that we lost custody of our children because of drugs, that we have felony convictions because of drugs, but we can change where we go from here. And that starts with forgiveness. You know, there's an old saying, I think it's, uh, our scars tell us where we've been, mm. but they don't have to dictate where we're going.
0: I think if there's one moment from the season premiere that will stick in my craw, it's this idea that Andrew Zimmern talked about, feeling the ace bandage of mm. pressure around my chest, and the sense of relief that he felt in sobriety. Um, It's just such a powerful image, Vic. Thanks for sharing it with us. Uh, It's
3: my pleasure, Ryan. I I can't tell you how much I appreciate uh, what you do and having me on to, to, to get these stories out and to help people because that was my motivation. That's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to help people and let people know they're not all alone and you don't have to suffer all alone. And that if you say the most courageous thing I've ever said in my life, which is, I need help people will be there for you. And, and your life can get better in ways you can't even imagine right now.
0: Vic Vela, creator and host of Back From Broken, CPR's podcast about recovery. Season two's begun on Stitcher, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts, and at CPR.org. <laughs> No doubt you'll be hearing a lot today about the anniversary of COVID coming to Colorado. But we want to leave on a brighter milestone. One year ago, Colorado Matters debuted on KRCC. We broadcast from Colorado Springs all that week. It was one of our last hurrahs before the pandemic shutdowns. So thanks to the folks of the Pikes Peak region and Southern Colorado for tuning in. Our team looks forward to many more years of service. And that team is... Carl Belick,
3: Allie Butner. Andrea Dukakis,
0: Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes,
1: Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill,
0: Pedro Lumbrano,
1: Patrice Mondragon,
0: Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News, and quite proudly, KRCC.